This episode of Fix Me Crink is brought to you by Four Roses Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. You're listening to Fix Me a Drink, a Flaviar podcast. Welcome to another edition of Fix Me Drink. I'm Noah Rothbaum, Flaviar's head of cocktails and spirits. Joining me as always is my colleague and co-host, David Wondrich. How are you, Dave? I'm doing just fine. Yourself? I am fine. We have uh, an excellent guest um, for our episode. Yeah, we do. This is uh, some, something different, which I like. You know. Absolutely. We have Brent Elliott, the master distiller from Four Roses. It's one of the oldest American whiskey brands mm-hmm. still operating, right? And, I, and kind of an eccentric one. They they have a fascinating history, a fascinating way that they make their whiskey and some delicious whiskeys. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Brent was good enough to send us some samples of their Four Roses Small Batch and the Four Roses Small Batch Selects, which I will be sipping the the Small Batch Select. I uh, already um, consumed mine. <laughs> you, you were, it was, um, you know, this is part of the research for our episodes. You know, we 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 look into, we we look in our, you know, our, our files, our notes, we sample before a guest comes on. So, uh, you know, it's all part of due diligence. You like to be an informed, uh, an informed host. Exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's not easy putting together a podcast. No, uh, it no, takes a lot no, of God, preliminary no. work. So uh, thank you for doing that, Dave. We'll get um, Brent on the phone shortly while I pour myself a glass of uh, small batch select bourbon from Boros. Welcome, Brent. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, for the whiskey. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. We we love a guest that uh, comes on as something good to say, but also um, has something delicious for us to sip on while we chat. Um, so uh, that's a added bonus for for David and myself. I have, I have to say uh, I jumped the gun a little, and I had some people over in my backyard yesterday. And uh, we did break out the uh, small batch select four roses. And uh, boy, did that bottle go fast. <laughs> there, was, there was a fair number of people. And, uh, uh, you know, there were second and third pours for everybody because uh, it uh, is a very, very tasty whiskey, I have to say. I'm glad everybody enjoyed it. And who says bourbon's just for wintertime? Right, exactly. Bourbon's for any time you're, you know, drinking with friends. It's a, it's a very friendly drink. At least, the, you know, Four Roses makes a very, uh, very mellow bourbon. I have to say, uh, compared to some, it's 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 uh, designed for sipping. I couldn't have said it better myself. And it's absolutely true. Every bottle, you know, our we always aim for, you know, mellow, smooth. And I hear all the time that whatever the proof is, the impression is that it's a lower proof. Yeah, very smooth, approachable, easy to drink. Well, it's rich, you know. It's so that that kind of cushions the proof, and uh, and you you get that mouthfeel, that rich texture that it doesn't taste sharp. Uh, some bourbons, you know, sharp can be great. It's it can be great when you're making some cocktails and things like that. I'm curious as to how you shape it to get this level of uh, mellowness and smoothness. Well, it's sort of, there are a few ways that we do it. I think because we take so much care to focus on the individual flavors of each one of these yeast strains, mm-hmm. um, through the fermentation and or 
in particular the distillation process, we tried to to drive the distill that's coming off the still to be crisp, bright, very clean. So that some of those more delicate flavors can shine through and really create that character that we're looking for. And in doing that, you know, it's it's a little brighter mm-hmm. and it's not overly heavy. And then when you age it, I think what you get are those top notes and that those nuances from the, the grains and from the yeast strains. And then that nice softness, that roundness that you get from the barrel. So I think the result is just a very mellow, approachable and very nice bourbon. For me, Four Roses has always sort of pursued a path of its own among the uh, legacy bourbon distilleries, among the older ones. And it's interesting to see, you know, still pursuing, to see you guys still pursuing this path. Do you do a sour mash or is it a sweet mash? It's always a sour mash. Always a sour mash. Interesting. But there are two different mash bills, right? So this is where Dave and I... We just get to drink it, right? But you have to worry about <laughs> all of the <laughs> the the complications because Four Roses, I think the process is probably more involved than any other brand I can really think of because there are what two different mash bills, which vary how I guess. Maybe we should start there. Okay, um, so both mash bills are high in rye relative to what you'll see in most other bourbons. Uh, even our low rye mash bill, we refer to it as low rye, it's still 20%. Okay, that's pretty high. Yeah, it's significant. So when I say low rye, I always have to sort of uh, explain that it's not, it's not low. It's just low in relation to our high rye mash bill, which is 35%. And then the rest is obviously a little bit of malted barley and then corn, right? Exactly. Yeah, 5% malted barley and then the remainder is corn. Uh, it, it's funny because I often, you know, think when I think of high rye mash bills, I tend to think more spicy, dark chocolate notes, things like that. And you definitely get some of the dark chocolate, but it's not uh, as much spice. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a, a rounder flavor profile than than you, than I normally expect. It's interesting. I get that a lot, and uh, I think a lot of that is you know people hear rye, and in some cases that does translate directly into spice, like you traditionally think of it. Uh, but, you know, rye also, I think more accurately, creates more of the, its unique spiciness that isn't hot. It's just, it is rye. That's the flavor. You can't really compare it accurately to anything else. It's just that rye spice. But it doesn't mean hot. And as we were just saying, you know, our bourbons are so easy to drink and easy on the palate. And that's kind of conflicts with, you know, what people perceive as, as high rye. Yeah. They're saying, oh, this is smooth. And I say, well, it's 35% rye. It's like, how can that be? But that's, as rye, it's a different kind of spice and it's not a hot spice. It's just, it's its own flavor. Has Four Roses always used like the two different mash bills or is that something that came into use, you know, in, in the 20th century or 21st century? Yeah, it was probably uh, mid to late century. And I can't really place a date on it. Um, you know, if you follow the history of our, our 135 years since, you know, the brand was trademarked, um, you know, when you go way back, we're, we had different ownership then, even like through Prohibition, you know, we were sold through Prohibition as medicinal whiskey. But even then, you know, it was the brand wasn't necessarily the liquid because you're, you know, everyone who had a license was pulling from government warehouses. 
So, you know, the history is kind of hard to follow as it is with any other brand, but we really kind of came in line to where we are now. My best guess would be 60s or 70s under Seagram's because um, they were all into blending and consistency. Blending sometimes has a bad connotation because you think blended whiskey. We're, we're, we're fans of, of blended straight whiskeys over yeah. here, I have to say. Yeah, blended straights are fine. When you throw in, you know, 80% grain neutral spirits or light whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's not whiskey as far as Yeah, that. you lost me. Which was a real thing for Four Roses, which obviously, you know, at a certain point, Seagram's right around the 60s starts to turn Four Roses into a blended whiskey. And then thankfully, about 25 years ago, right, it, it went back to being a straight bourbon, right? Which was, uh, I think, a, a miraculous turn of events for Four Roses. Yeah, really, it's kind of miraculous that we lasted almost you know, 50 years in the U.S. market as a blended whiskey. Unbelievable. And we were kind of just coasting on our, well, initially the quality was pretty good from what I understand, but uh, I think we were coasting greatly on the success that we had had prior to that as a blended whiskey. You know, we were top selling bourbon in the U.S., highly respected, highly regarded, and then Seagram's decided to focus on the international markets. So they started sending all the straight bourbon to Europe and Japan. And then here in the US, again, yeah, went to the blended whiskey. And it wasn't until 2002 that we came back and really kind of had to dig ourselves out of a hole because anytime someone saw Four Roses, mm -hmm. they associated it with the you know, bottom shelf blended whiskey that we had been for, for quite some time. Yeah. I remember bringing a, bringing a bottle of straight uh, Four Roses back from Europe around 2000 because it was a novelty, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, wow, that's you know, that's historic stuff. That you, know, you always think of like post-war uh, uh, Europe and post-war, you know, when Four Roses kind of was there with the GIs and, oh, and yeah. the occupation and all that. And so uh, it was pretty historic. And uh, uh, I was, you know, I was I was stunned to see it that, I, and I couldn't get it in the U.S. Well, there was a there a famous giant four roses sign right in Times Square, right? So yeah. some of those photos of you know the sailors coming home and celebrating, mm -hmm. right in the background is you can't mistake it as a, a giant four roses. And I think even earlier there was a sign like in Madison Square Park in New York. It's one of the few uh, American whiskey brands that not only the distillery uh, and and the the sort of the chain of distiller of, of you know the distillery and the ownership goes back to uh pre-prohibition but the actual branding does yeah which which is uh -huh. really rare there's only a there are only a couple of others uh maybe overholt uh, is, is one but but very few right that's a good point i think the branding is it's unique you know of course the quality of the liquid and dedication of all the employees through the years it, we couldn't succeed without that but i think to have survived prohibition and then to survive, you know, 50 years of being off the market. I think it does play into that, I don't know, that unique image that we have. Yeah. You know, you've got most bourbons are more of uh, intentionally historic. They have a name old in them or they're named after an old distiller, an old place. You know, we, we kind of set ourselves apart by being four roses, but we do have the history, I think, because we have such a strong history in the U.S. market. 
that you know people do associate us with you know all these ads that we've all seen for yeah. years. And the advertisement for Four Roses has been very strong and, and very good. Incredible. Well, I, I included a bunch of the Four Roses, you know, full color ads in my book, The Art of American Whiskey, the right out, you know, between Prohibition and World War II. You know, it's almost like America, we had to relearn what alcohol was and like how to use it in good cocktails. And what's interesting is a lot of the Four Roses ads are, you know, showcasing cocktail recipes for, mm -hmm. you know, punch Manhattan and almost kind of saying like, hey, everybody, like, this is what like whiskey should really taste like. And this is how to make a proper cocktail now that we're not worried about the police knocking down the door or <laughs> getting arrested. So it's like it is sort of plays an amazing part in sort of retraining, you know, uh, America's bar culture and, and bartenders, which is, you know, very rarely do you actually get to see some kind of, you know, historical evidence of uh, of a trend. And, and here it is in, in full color and Esquire or other magazines, which is pretty awesome. And you mentioned the uh, Times Square Four Roses sign. I always like to point to that as a benchmark for just how popular we were prior to being pulled from the shelves as a bourbon in the U.S. That was, if you think about marketing real estate, I can't think of any place... <laughs> I mean that's that's prime prime prime, you know that that's like the the greatest location in American uh, advertising. Yeah, it, it actually is, and it was up there that big neon sign from 1937 to 1945. Amazing. I mean that's part of the reason why I think Four Roses, you know, has you know sort of seeped into the bedrock of like American pop culture, right? So even even when people were in, drinking you know, couldn't get Four Roses of the bourbon or, you know, people weren't really drinking whiskey that much in the 70s and 80s and 90s. You still knew the name, right? Even even if people didn't yeah. exactly understand what Four Roses was, mm -hmm. when it came back, it was like, you know, there's some somewhere in the recesses of our collective minds was like, oh, yeah, Four Roses. I remember reading about it or hearing about it. But I don't really remember exactly what it is, which I think worked to the brand's benefit <laughs> because a lot of people didn't even remember that it had been, you know, a blended whiskey. And they just and assumed that it was always a bourbon. Exactly. And it's just sort of been off the market or off the market in the area. I remember Dave was talking about Europe. I remember going to Spain in like, I don't know, the early 2000s and drinking, you know, Four Roses bourbon there. And, and it was almost like, some kind of parallel universe because the folks in Spain didn't even understand what I meant when I was saying that it was different in America. And they're like, mm -hmm. it was like two, two tracks that the brand was on and the people in Europe, their opinion and um, like memory of, of, of Four Roses was obviously always a bourbon. So it's completely different than, you know, what I had experienced in America, you know, very rarely do you get these two perspectives running in tandem on uh, on parallel tracks, but but here you are. We talked a little bit about you know the the different mash bills. I think it's inevitable. I think we have to talk about the yeast grains. Uh, you know, I've read about them. Your your predecessor uh, Al Young, you know, went over it with me several times. I'm still incredibly confused <laughs> by all the mash bills yeah. and the yeast grains and and how you use them in 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 combinations. Again, 
I think it's a wonderful thing to hear while I'm sipping on a glass of four roses, but I can't guarantee how much of it I will retain because it's very complicated. <laughs> but but let's try it again. Maybe, maybe this is the time, Brent, that like I finally understand. You're right. It is complicated. And that's why I don't just open up with these facts to just any <laughs> I, I wait for someone to ask. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably wise. I bet you learned that from experience. <laughs> But it, it's super interesting. And originally, the 10 recipes, the reason Seagram's did that, this is back when Four Roses was owned by Seagram's, they defined uh, quality as consistency, which mm-hmm. I still understand. I mean, yeah. we owe it to a consumer to be consistent. You don't want to go buy your favorite product just to find out that it's changed. You know, that's your favorite product for a reason. You like the flavor profile. So to make that consistent, the idea that Seagram's had was, you know, create a palette of different flavors so you can manipulate the final flavor in the bottle. So you can bring, you know, some barrels of this recipe, barrels of this recipe, slight barrels of different ages, whatever it might be. It gives you another dimension of control when you're creating that final product. And the reason that's important with bourbon is you, know, you guys know the rules and regulations, but you know, it's a unique product in that we are kind of at the mercy of mother nature and a million other factors mm-hmm. in, in how every barrel that comes out of the warehouse is going to taste. Yeah. You can't just put something in it to adjust it. Exactly. Yeah. If it's not fruity as it needs to be. We can't just order a jug of fruit juice. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that comes out of each barrel is the result of many, many steps that involves a lot of different people, a lot of different ingredients, a lot of different expertise. And I think it's part of the charm of bourbon. Yeah. You know, that's I think people mm-hmm. appreciate that. And because of that, that's why we originally had the 10 recipes. So we can mm-hmm. have control over that final profile. 10 different yeast strains, essentially. So 10, so you're making basically 10 different bourbons, right? And do you do you use some uh yeasts with with one mash bill and some with the other one, or all of them with both mash bills? Uh yeah, we use all of them with both. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of different whiskeys there. So you're basically making 20 different whiskeys, right? I mean, because they all taste, yeah. I would imagine, between subtly and in- incredibly different, right? I mean, we're not talking about small variations in flavor, right? That the yeast, does it create large variations? Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, it's only half that. We we have two mash bills and five strings. All right. So 10. So I overestimated it. So so only 10. Only 10. Whiskey. Only 10. Yeah, we only have to juggle 10. To only 10. Just to put this in perspective, many bourbon brands that are very large or small have one mash bill and one yeast strain, right? Yeah. Some because of the vagaries of mergers and acquisitions and consolidations have maybe two mash bills, right? And one yeast strain. And one yeast strain. I mean, occasionally, you know, as over time, as as some of our American whiskey companies have grown ever, ever larger, you know, you, you know, one brand, you know, will have one, their, obviously their own proprietary yeast strain, their own mash bill. Then another brand will have it. So, you know, some of these large conglomerates theoretically have many brands with different yeast strains and different mash bills. But each brand itself, I don't know of anybody else that goes to the extremes that Four Roses does to create all these different flavor combinations. 
Yeah, and we couldn't do what we do without that. Not only for consistency, you know, again, that's why we did mm -hmm. it, but that's what makes our small batch taste different than our Boros bourbon and our small batch select different. You know, it's the combinations are really infinite. And, and are these uh, dry yeasts or do you keep them in donut jugs, like wet yeast, uh, self, you know, that you propagate yourselves? Yeah, we propagate everything ourselves. Wow. And that in itself is a super interesting and involved process. Yeah, that's very complicated, I would imagine. It is. Like if you take a tour of a distillery, you know, you see the mm -hmm. main process, which is not simple, but relative to the yeast, it it's probably simpler because you just have milling, mashing, fermentation, distillation. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's a whole parallel process with pretty much all the steps except distillation just to propagate the yeast. And we always want to stay very close to that mother strain, which we actually store offsite or strains. So all five of our strains are stored by White Labs out in San Diego. And every month we will send them, you know, the production schedule. We say we're going to produce K and O in a particular month. We will let them know that they will thaw these from their deep freeze. They're frozen. So if they don't, they don't propagate, they don't divide and usually mutate, no uh, risk of contamination. So they will grow those up, uh, grow the cultures up on a plate and then reculture those onto a slant, which is just uh, some auger in a test tube, essentially, and they send that. Sounds like the the basic plot of some kind of sci-fi movie, right? Where you have <laughs> somebody in a lab coat trying to propagate a yeast strain on a little glass slide, and, and things it, get a little out of control. And next thing you know, everybody's drinking bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> it's taking over the city. It's uh, the yeast yeah. is has grown into a, a giant monster. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, what you're saying is is kind of amazing because again, most brands they all have to do this, but the fact is that to do this, you know, really like, you know, where you're, you're propagating five different yeast strains and keeping all of them healthy and, you know, close to the original yeast is, is a Herculean task. I mean, that is, work. it's yeah. a huge amount of work, but on the other end, you know, bourbon is, it is tightly regulated, right? There's only so many ways that you can affect flavor, right? There's, uh -huh. You know, the mash bill, obviously you guys yeah. have two different mash bills, right? There's, you know, you know, barrel char, for instance, level of barrel char, right? Which, yeah. which will affect things, how long you age it, right? The proof, right? But we've, we've, we've kind of like maxed out on most of these things, right? People have tried that. The one thing Dave and I often talk about is yeast and how like, this is such an incredible part of making whiskey that often people try to get through as quickly as possible because I think yeah, the brewing the brewing part is, is is the part you hear the least about. Right. What you guys are doing is is a masterclass in brewing, and 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 bourbon making from you know affecting it with that. It's amazing. It, it really is. I think if you look at you know any two specific brands and compare them, and assuming they they're aged about the same, you know, same char level, mm -hmm. aged in Kentucky. And that's going to drive a lot of the flavor, but really the differences you're going to see are driven mostly by the grains you select, the yeast you use, you know, fermentation profiles, and to some degree, maybe distillation, you know, how you, how you cut the tails and, but 
you don't hear a lot about that that fermentation. No, you really don't. You really don't. And you know, the cuts are are often there's not a lot of difference between distilleries because the the equipment that everybody's using is more or less the same. Produced by the same manufacturers. Yeah. The water sources in Kentucky, at least fairly consistent across the state. Mm -hmm. So I mean, a lot of variables are kept similar, which I mean, again, it blows my mind that you know, you see similarities between a lot of brands, but also you see tremendous differences. But Four Roses has always been kind of standing across the road from, from the other brands, <laughs> you know, just in terms of flavor and 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 obviously in terms of process. It, it is kind of amazing, and it it almost becomes sort of like a, you know, almost like a blended scotch, right? Without the the grain whiskey in that, you know, mm -hmm. blended scotch, you know, they're blending different single malts from different distilleries together. And it's almost like Four Roses has created within one distillery, 10 different distilleries to, to blend together, which is such a, you know, it's an advantage of, you know, an orchestra versus like a soloist, you know, and you guys have a whole orchestra of, of flavors. My role, I spent a lot more time worrying about the blending barrel selection, taste profiles on the tail end than mm -hmm. the distilling side. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of distilleries that, you know, obviously you choose the barrels, but there's a really only one, you know, you, you can choose them for age and 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 doneness, so to speak, but you there's not much beyond it. That's a lot of stuff to manage. Again, those dimensions, not only do you have 10 recipes, but you've got different ages mm -hmm. um, and there's some variation sometimes between the batches so you know selecting the right batches for the right products selecting some of the you know batches for the private barrel program or for to be set aside to let them age mm -hmm. for limited editions and the variety is just remarkable do you find that uh, some yeast strains are better at like one age and others are better at a different age definitely when i'm asked what my favorite recipe is my initial question back is well at what age <laughs> right interesting well i'll give you the, like the example of the q yeast strain and that's the one that creates floral aromas mm -hmm. and historically that one was used only in four roses bourbon and if you look at any of our core pro products that's still the only place that is used and so we always use those barrels at five or six years of age and have a wonderful nose on them. I mean, that's they really add complexity and just, again, sort of a top note to Four Roses Bourbon, that, that floral. But if you sample some OBSV at five years, in my opinion, it's it's good, it's fine, but it doesn't have, uh, it's not the whole package. It, it's not as complex as OBSV at five or six years. Mm -hmm. And so, like when we first started our private barrel program, that was one I thought, well, so when we started, it's eight to 12 years of age for bourbon. So we didn't have enough. I don't think we had any eight, nine, 10, 11, or 12 year old V's, I mean, Q's. So I kind of had it in my mind that it was like, well, you know, we'll age these out and maybe some people will like them, but, you know, Q's not the best standalone recipe. Mm -hmm. But much to my surprise, happily surprised that 
once it starts to reach eight, nine, 10 years, some of those sort of light top notes kind of sort of mellow out and they kind of, as they're dropping down and the uh, the sweetness and the, the characteristics of the barrel are increasing, they hit a crossroads where they create a lot of unique flavors. And it's more of a candy. Oh, that's interesting. And that's just a really good example of how age affects each of our recipes differently. And if you look at, but at the same time, I think in most cases, the cues, once they hit about 12, 13 years and they continue to age, in most cases, I don't think they age as well as like say a K or a V, which I think are two that age wonderfully of our five E strings. So that's interesting. There are always exceptions. As part of my job is to find those batches that are the exceptions, you know, either hold on to them or use them before it's too late. Use them in their at their prime, the peak of maturation for each one. Well, it all kind of reminds me of the beginning of Four Roses, right? When Paul Jones Jr. in, in the early 1880s started building the brand he was buying whiskey from different producers right before you had a distillery right and oh yeah that's sort of the same art now you essentially make 10 different whiskeys but he was sort of buying whiskeys from 10 different mm -hmm. producers or who knows how many different producers and and putting it together so it's it's almost like you know we've come full circle you know, like obviously you have your own distillery now and you're making all these different whiskeys, but it's it's very similar to the origins of Four Roses. It's kind of like uh, yeah, Japanese whiskey where they yeah. don't trade between the distilleries. And I think consumers have started to accept that in bourbon whiskey now, more so than, mm -hmm. you know, in the past. And blending and, you know, careful about blending. Um, and we're careful about blending when we use that term. Because for so long, we were trying to run away from that stigma of a blended whiskey. And so much so that we, we used a mingled. It means the same thing, but it doesn't, you know, evoke that image of a, a Four Roses blended whiskey. So, you know, as a company, we, we never used the word blended. But I mean, we were blending, but we were blending straight bourbon whiskeys. Right. Yeah. Like I said, it's come full circle. Now people appreciate the art of blending. Yeah. And I think that's really led to a lot more, a lot of fascination. I think it's it's helped that uh, American blended whiskey, the you know the stuff with grain raw, grain spirit, and plus plus straight whiskey mixed, is is such a dead category. Yeah, you know it's not it's not advertising, it's not competing on anything but uh, the bottom shelf now. I think we've got enough distance from it. You know that I mean that stuff used to be the major selling stuff that's what everybody was drinking but i don't i don't know anybody who drinks it anymore that's for sure now you'd be hard pressed to find a bottle i think in, yeah. in many liquor stores yeah. we've come around so far that the modern drinkers so many people have never even had the old yeah they're not going to even think about this stuff right so it's it's a new day for uh mm -hmm. blended straight whiskeys which uh we can use the word again yeah, yeah. dave and i are here for that so uh we're glad that uh, we're glad that you're for all the hard work that you're doing uh, on on Four Roses. Uh, continue to make all the yeast strains. I think now I think we've 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 got a good handle on it. Makes me even more impressed. We could certainly you know appreciate the work that goes into it. Is definitely a step beyond. But thank you so much, Brent, for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you in person. Uh, I look forward to that. I hope so. It's been a pleasure. Good seeing you guys and. Uh... 
Y'all hope to see you guys soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fix Me a Drink. Dave and I encourage you to always drink responsibly. Cheers.